We are glad that you are here today. I want to get started right at 9.30 just so um, we're cognizant of your time. I hope that you all are enjoying Christy McClellan as much as I am, and I know um, my small group is. I have loved learning through the Middle Eastern lens and through different glasses. Did any of y'all watch the news this morning and what's going on in Iran with women and their hair? We're going to learn about some of that today. It's just ironic how it all matches up. Well, we are glad that you're here. We're going to get started. Evan is going to get us started in just a minute. We are going to start the video at 30 minutes in. So um, if you have your Bible, get your Bible out. And um, I want to also mention in the middle of the table are prayer cards. Um, and our prayer team would love to pray for you if you have any requests. The highlighted colored index cards and the prayer boxes are in the side of the room and the back of the room. You can put your name or be anonymous. Anything else? Y'all, we're halfway through the study. Can you believe that? Um, let me open us up in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for all the blessings that you've given us today. Thank you for um, the gift of community that you've given us, Lord, and um, letting us all be here together and see each other and worship you together and learn more about you. Um, I pray for the women who couldn't be here, who are sick or have sick children or for whatever reason couldn't get here today. Lord, I just ask that you be with them and um, just be with us as we continue to learn more about you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Chapter 7. This is going to be our pearl tonight. This is going to be our main course tonight. As we get ready to eat the word of God together, a story tonight that is going to happen at a meal. This story happens in the context of table fellowship. And it's going to happen in the context of the honorable being allowed to sit at the table with the marginalized, most likely sitting against the wall. In Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36, the Bible says this. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now stop and pause. Now that we've seen our sketch, don't we understand what that looks like for him to recline at the table? Laying on his left side with his head toward the table. But where are Jesus' feet? They will be away from the table or close to the wall. The next thing that we want to unpack is a Pharisee inviting Jesus to have dinner in the first place. You might want to write this down. But in first century Judaism... A male had to be 30 years of age before he could be a rabbi. That is the age of rabbinic authority. So sometimes we wonder when the Bible is very specific to tell us that Jesus was how old when he started walking around the Galilee living as a rabbi. He was 30 At 30 years of age, Jesus becomes a rabbi. He is living fully and meaningfully in the context of his first century Jewish world. 
Now, what would happen when new rabbis or 30-year-old rookie rabbis would start rabbinizing? That is not a word. I just made that up. But when a 30-year-old becomes a rabbi and assumes rabbinic authority and starts rabbinizing the ministry of being a rabbi, older religious leaders who were maybe 40 years old, 50 years old, 60 years old, they would want to examine and vet the pups, the rookies. Hey, 30-year-old, you're new to the game. I want to test your theology. Tell me what you think about this. We saw it last week when the Pharisees came to Jesus and asked him about the issue of marriage and divorce. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? That's a rabbinic conversation. They're asking young rabbi Jesus, what does he think about this? And there were three primary places where this questioning, this vetting, this older religious leader with a younger religious leader or an older rabbi and a younger rabbi would take place. Number one, it would happen at the Southern Rabbinical Teaching Steps in Jerusalem. Number two, it often happened in synagogues. Sometimes they're called baits or houses. And interestingly enough, the third place where this would happen was at meals. An older religious leader would invite a younger religious leader, an older rabbi would invite a younger rabbi to come over for table fellowship. And the younger rabbi just knew, okay, I'm about to get questioned. I'm about to get vetted. The seniors are about to school me. They're getting ready to ask what I think about all manner of things. So when our story begins tonight with a Pharisee inviting Jesus to have dinner with him, and Jesus goes to the Pharisee's house, And reclines at the table. As we read this story with Middle Eastern eyes, we know that what is getting ready to happen at this meal. They're getting ready to talk to Jesus, the younger rabbi, about his theologies on things. Hey, you're new to this. What do you think about it? Our story continues. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, wherever our little artifact is, I'm going to need it back in a moment. So if you want to bring it on up. So a woman is being introduced to our story. And the Bible says that when she learned, by the way, great job on not dropping it. We made it through. A woman is being introduced to our story. She has lived a sinful life. She learns that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, so she came with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, a few things we know about alabaster. It's indigenous to Egypt. It's not indigenous to the land of Israel, so it's a very expensive bottle. It's a very expensive jar, and it probably has very expensive perfume in it. Now, we've already talked about the cultural norms of how you greet an honored person when they come for table fellowship. Everybody gets the kiss of welcome. Everybody gets their feet washed. Everybody gets olive oil for their hands. But what do you do for special guests? You anoint them with a special kind of oil. So she is coming with her alabaster jar of perfume to anoint Jesus. 
And I want to now take you into something that is a possibility of what could also have been taking place at this meal. I want to contend for the idea. We don't know for sure, but it's an idea that I learned when I was studying in Israel, and I like it. So we're going to go there tonight. I think it fits with the culture. It fits very much in a way of congruency with Jesus and women in the first century world. But if you're taking notes tonight, I want to contend that this woman brought two jars to this dinner, not one. And as I get ready to unpack it, I want you to go with me to Psalm chapter 56. Christy, it mentions the alabaster jar perfume. Where are you getting? What is this possible second jar? Let's take a look at this. In Psalm chapter 56, verse 8, it says this. You yourself have recorded my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your records? Now, we've already talked about this, but the Jewish people are very different from the Greeks. The Greeks are philosophers. Aristotle, Socrates, Plato. That's not the rabbinic way. It's not the Jewish way. When Jewish people read the Bible, they seek to just do it. They want to just live it out. They don't want to just know it. They want to embody it. Think back to our Talit. The living God told the Israelites to attach tassels on the kanafs or the wings of their garments. Did they do it? They did it. When they read the scriptures, they seek to live it out. They don't want it just to live in their minds. They want it to live in their bodies. They are a people of embodiment. And Psalm 56, 8 tends to give the idea that tears are kept in bottles or that the living God somehow keeps a record of our tears. So hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus came on the scene, Jewish women started reading this psalm. And if God is going to have a bottle that collects or keeps memory of all of my tears, then I am going to do that too. And what Jewish women started was this long-standing tradition of having their very own tear jars. And this is what this is. This is what you've been passing around. It is an actual 1st to 2nd century A.D. tear jar discovered in Israel. And Jewish women would have these. They're called a lacrimatory. Everybody say lacrimatory. Think lacrimal or lacrimal duct where your tears come from. And they read Psalm 56, 8, just like they read about attaching tassels to the tallit, and they want to live it out. So Jewish women will have their tear jars. And when they weep, when things break them in half, when things make them cry, when things make them sad, when they are grieving, when they are lamenting, when they are mourning, when their men go off to war... Throughout history, Jewish women will pull out their tear jars and they will physically collect their tears. They will allow their tears to fall into their tear jars. They are collecting them. They are keeping them. They are holding them. Ladies, I hope you know that your tears matter. The things that have made you cry, they matter. 
And I do want to take God at his word. And I do want to believe that God has a record of every tear that I have ever shed. And Jewish women would have these jars. And when their husbands would come home from war, women would go get their tear jars. And they would, quote unquote, pour out their tears saying, do you see how much I missed you while you were gone? I've been praying for you. I'm so glad you're home. So Jewish women in Jesus' day... We might well imagine so many of them having these lacrimatories, so many of them having these tear jars. And every time they looked at it, they knew that it represented the sum total of all their sorrow, all of their tears, all of the things that had broken them, vexed them, pressed them. And I want to contend for the idea that when this woman comes to this dinner, she hears that Jesus has been there. The text explicitly says that she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, but I also think she brought this. I also believe that she brought her lacrimatory, because who better if you were to anoint or pour out the sorrows of your life, who would you rather pour them on than the Son of God? Who would you rather give your tears to than to the Messiah? I want to show you a little bit about where there's a possibility that this comes into our story. She brings the alabaster jar of perfume. And the next thing that we have to talk about in our sketch of our first century meal, the Bible just told us that she had been known as a sinner. We have a Pharisee hosting this meal. How many of you think Pharisees had sinful women sitting at their tables? So she is at the Pharisee's house, but is she one of the ones at the table? No. Where is she sitting? She's against the wall. And now we begin to locate and to understand how this story, how this narrative is playing out. I believe with all my heart she's there with her alabaster jar of perfume to anoint him high and holy as an honored guest. And I believe in my heart, with all my heart, she brought her tear jar. It's a double anointing that's coming. She's getting ready to anoint him high and she's getting ready to anoint him low. To give him every tear she's ever shed. And to anoint him with an alabaster jar of perfume. Our story goes on as we pick it up in Luke 7. It says, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping. So we can see the imagery. She's sitting against a wall which would have been closer to Jesus' feet. She is not close to his head which is what you usually anoint the special guest. You anoint their head with oil. She can't get to his head. She's against the wall. The closest physical part of Jesus' body to her is his feet. And the Bible says that she has her alabaster jar of perfume. And she begins weeping. And I love this next line. So she began to wet his feet With her tears. There is this idea of wetting Jesus' feet with her tears. Philosophically, maybe. In a Jewish world, if you're going to wet somebody with your tears, it's your tear jar. There's this idea of her pouring out the tears of her entire life 
of her entire story on to Jesus's feet. She begins to lose it. She is overcome with emotion. We don't exactly know what is causing the weeping. But she is weeping at a dinner party at a Pharisee's house. Now, how many of you have ever been somewhere when something started going down? You're in a Pharisee's home having an honorable dinner. You're a woman against a wall. Jesus is there. You start crying. And now everyone in the room is looking at you. How many of you, if you're at a party or something and something goes down, you're just trying to find the door? Like fight, flight, or freeze? Where are my flea people? Just, I need to get out of here. Where are my people? They're like, where's the popcorn? It's about to get good. Like drama goes down, you just want to pull up and watch it. You know, when we put ourselves in this story, everyone there is bearing witness to this. What is this holy rabbi going to do, this honored guest at this table, with this sinful woman against a wall who's crying at his feet? This isn't happening all of the time. This is a really unusual moment. And in a Middle Eastern world, we are expecting the host and the men at the table to shame her. This is what we're expecting. You're losing it at a dinner party. You are losing it at my dinner party, the host is probably thinking. Now you say, Christy, why do you say she's losing it? We've already talked about hair in Jesus' world. Women cover their hair. It's your glory. You don't go out with your hair unbound. And yet we find this happening. When we pick it up in Luke 7, then she wiped them, meaning Jesus' feet, with her I'm just going to read that again. Then she wiped them, being Jesus' feet, with her hair. Now everybody at the dinner table is going, what is going on? She just unbound her hair, and she is touching a holy rabbi of Israel Weeping and crying at a Pharisee's home in the middle of table fellowship. This is highly irregular. She is losing it. For hair to come down, for her to start wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. And I believe with all of my heart pouring out the tears in her tear jar. Then the passage ends. She kissed them and poured perfume on them. This woman is losing it on Jesus' feet. Do you understand that when she takes her hair, she is wiping his feet with her glory? This is what she's doing. She is anointing him. Maybe with the tears of her life, she is anointing him with the alabaster jar of perfume. It's like a double anointing, high and low, honorable and just raw. 
How many of you get it that a rabbi of Israel 2,000 years ago would have a lot of thoughts about this? Stop touching me. Get yourself together. Put your hair back up. Everything about what you're doing right now is shameful. This is what we are expecting to be said to her. This is the way we are expecting this story to go along. How many of you know Jesus can handle you falling apart on him? It's the singular thing I love about this pearl. It's the singular thing that I love in this story because you read this story with Middle Eastern eyes. And she is losing it on him. At a public meal at a Pharisee's house. And we're getting ready to see what Jesus is going to do with this and what he's going to do with her in this moment. I don't know when was the last time or if you have ever given yourself permission to just lose it on Jesus. Raw, unfiltered, unhinged, where you truly just allow yourself to pour the sum total of who you are on him. And to know that feeling when he can take it. When he can embrace you. When he can sit with you in your pain. So now we want to talk about reactions. Because we have a sinful woman against a wall, falling apart, at a dinner party, taking her hair down, anointing Jesus' feet, wiping them with her hair And maybe pouring out her tear jar. So now we want to take a look at the reactions of the people in the room. Go with me to Luke chapter 7 verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, so this is the host, we're going to learn his name was Simon. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. That she is a sinner. You got to love this. The host puts on his judgy pants and starts judging. He judges Jesus and the woman. You notice he thought to himself, if this man really were a prophet, then he would know what kind of woman this is, this unclean woman touching him. In his thoughts, he's judging Jesus for not responding or reacting. He's judging the woman and so there's judgment coming from him. Ladies, I want you to write this down because it's, it's quintessential, I think, in our understanding of Jesus and his world. 2,000 years ago, Jesus lived in a religious world that was all about in and out, clean and unclean. Everything was about who's inside, who's outside, who is clean, who's unclean. And clean tried so hard not to touch unclean, because when clean touched unclean, clean became unclean. If you're with me so far, say okay. Jesus enters into that world, 
and starts living in an entirely different way as a holy rabbi of Israel who is clean. And Jesus throughout his life never minded touching unclean or those who were on the outside because with Jesus, it all was being restored. Jesus knew that when Jesus touched unclean, unclean became clean. There was a restoration that was taking place. Jesus wasn't afraid of unclean touching him. He knew he could make unclean clean. Jesus isn't afraid for you to touch him. He knows that he can make unclean clean. So our host is going to judge. Now our story continues in Luke chapter 7 verses 40 to 43. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Can you just kind of feel like something's coming? Can you just feel it? Before he even addresses the woman, he's addressing Simon. Now we know his name. Simon the Pharisee, the host of the dinner. And Jesus is going to tell a story that reflects Simon and the woman. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50 Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Now, that is almost like the butter on the roll. I need you to look to your neighbor and say it's about to go down. (laughs) It's about to go down. And what Jesus is getting ready to do here is he's getting ready to rearrange this room. This room is going to look different when Jesus is finished with it. Because our story, as it's sitting right now, Simon the Pharisee, honored host, he's up here, woman against a wall, she's down here. Does she need Mishpat and Zedekah? Does she need a generous lifting? Uh, By the end of this story, it's going to look like this. He's getting ready to lower Simon, and he's getting ready to lift the woman. Jesus is getting ready to rearrange this room. If you are ready for this with me, say, let's do this. Let's do this. this. Luke chapter 7, verses 44 to 47. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, you got to love this. He's looking at the woman. He's acknowledging her, but he's talking to Simon the Pharisee, the host. Now, do we all remember our five cultural norms of hospitality when you arrived at a host home? We remember those, right? Keep those in your mind and let's take a look at what's happening. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. Do you see what Jesus just did? Simon did not extend the norms of hospitality when Jesus came to his house that night. 
And this woman, this lowly sinner woman against the wall, she is doing for Jesus what Simon should have done. And so what Jesus is saying is, Simon, you're actually the shameful one in the room right now. You didn't extend the hospitality norms toward me. But this woman right here, she's done it all. Now, you do understand that Jesus is saying this to Simon in his own house at his own dinner table. If we need a subheading for this story, it's called a who's your daddy now moment. (laughs) Jesus is rearranging the room. Simon is being lowered. This woman is being lifted. Jesus is bringing mishpat and said a car to her, this is Jesus roaring. This is Jesus standing up for, contending for, standing in the gap for this woman who is losing it on his feet, who is pouring out her life. This is who Jesus is. This is what he's like. You know, ladies, just two passages in what we're seeing here with Jesus rearranging the room. In Psalm chapter 75, verse 7, it says, It is God who judges. He brings one down. He exalts another. James chapter 4, verse 6 says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Now, ladies, we're not even done yet. Because Jesus has addressed Simon. But he's getting ready to address the woman. So now we're back to what will Jesus do when you lose it on him? What will Jesus do when you pour out the grief, the hurt, the sadness, all your tears upon him? Can he handle it? What will his reaction be? How's he going to respond now as he turns his gaze, as he turns his look As he turns the moment squarely and directly to her. You pick up our story in Luke chapter 7, verses 48 to 50. It says this, Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Now that's a big question. That's a theological question. Who is this that even forgives sins? We're expecting Jesus to go, hello, I'm the Messiah. I am the one who forgives sins. I mean, this is a big moment. Like, that's a big, important question. Who forgives sins? This is a salvation question that they're raising. And ladies, what I love, we keep talking about being women, learning to stare at God and glance at our lives. In this moment, Jesus refuses to divert his gaze away from her. He ignores them completely because he's staring at her. He doesn't even answer their question. His gaze is fixed upon her, the one he's bringing mishpat and sedekah to, the one he's bringing a generous justice to. A generous lifting up out of shame and a restoring of her honor. And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Ladies, we look at this story 
And as we're asking ourselves, who is Jesus, you have to know he's not okay with you sitting against a wall. He comes to generously lift you up out of your shame to restore your honor and to send you away in shalom. There's such movement in all of these stories. How many of you feel like Simon probably never invited him back for dinner? (laughs) I think that might have been a one and done at Simon's house. I'm not sure. But I guarantee you that woman never forgot that night. Because when she lost it on a holy rabbi of Israel, the Messiah, the very Son of God, even to the point of unbinding her hair and wiping his feet with her glory, she would always remember him as the one who could take that. And as the one who contended for her in front of every man that was at that table that night. This is who Jesus is. This is what he's like. Ladies, we eat these stories because if he did it for her, he seeks to do it for you and me. Between now and next week, live like a river and not a lake. Share these things. Give these things. Extend these things. We are learning to take heart as his daughters. Have a great night. We'll see you next week. We get to go unpack this in our small group. How many of you have heard or read this story for years and never really looked at it the way it's been brought to your attention today? Anybody? Yeah. As Christy would say, we're going to go yeshiva. So if you will move to your small groups, we're going to go unpack this. Thank you.